This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, August 15th, 2018. Episode 55, concerning good wine, bad ships, and baked soldiers. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today we begin our journey east in our month of travel writers with perhaps the most well-known medieval globetrotter, Marco Polo, and the book of the marvels of the world, a.k.a. The Travels of Marco Polo. Polo is a figure surrounded by uncertainty and controversy. How true the tales of his travels are remains a matter of perennial debate. Even in the 14th century, when the book was first circulating, Many people treated it as a romance, as fiction. In the Renaissance, Polo was afforded much more credibility, perhaps because Europe was experiencing much higher levels of contact with China and could see the relative accuracy of Polo's descriptions. But in modern scholarship, suspicion has again risen, with some claiming he never went any further than Constantinople and merely repeated tales he had been told by other anonymous travelers. Now, that's not the majority opinion of scholars, of course, but the debate has been a serious matter and not just crank conspiracy theories. As it stands, the general consensus seems to be that A. Polo did exist, B. He did travel to the court of Kublai Khan in the mid-1200s, C. That he returned to Venice and told his tales, and D. That the text that came out of this is a mixture of authentic eyewitness reporting some common traveler's legends, and romance elements that have been imposed upon the quote-unquote original narrative. Which means that while Polo describes much that had not been described with nearly as much detail by any Europeans before him, his book sits quite comfortably in the medieval geographical tradition, significantly less fanciful than many of the texts that preceded him, but still a work that blurs fact and fiction. Marco's life is likewise blurrier than a lot of encyclopedic summaries of it would lead you to believe. Much of the biographical narrative we have of Marco Polo comes from his first biographer, Giovanni Battista Ramuzio, a fellow Venetian, but one separated from Polo by over two centuries, writing the biographical sketch in the 1550s. Even in a city-state very proud of family histories, 200 years is a long time for an oral tradition to not drift into the legendary, even when, or really especially when, the main character is a famous figure. The contemporary notices we have of Marco Polo, other than what's in the travels itself, are just a handful of appearances in legal documents, which establish a few basic facts about Polo, but don't really color in any details. This gives you one of these dilemmas historians face. Here, in Ramuzio, is a source full of interesting information, except most of it can neither be verified nor disproven. You can't really even judge based on the character and trustworthiness of the witness, because this isn't an eyewitness. If this were a court proceeding or a scientific study, you'd throw it out. But if you're a historian writing about Marco Polo, what are you going to do? Ignore the source and have nothing to say other than, we just don't know anything for certain? seems kind of wasteful of all this information, and, perhaps more importantly, it leaves you without anything to say or do. 
You find this with a lot of medieval and ancient history. Actually, in all history, but it's perhaps most obvious for the eras that have the patchiest documentary records. A lot of historical scholarship, um, and maybe this is especially true for literary history, which is, of course, the kind of scholarship I've read the most of, um, this scholarship has to become this kind of logic tree, a series of nested if-then statements. If Ramuzio's details are true, then we can draw these further conclusions about Marco Polo's status in Venetian society. If Beowulf took its written form during the reign of Canute, then these themes can be found in it which reflect that political situation. And this method is fine. It starts to get trickier when your argument depends on a whole nested series of if assumptions. That's when you start to build castles in the air without realizing just how far from the reliable ground you've gotten. And more problematic still is when scholars don't make the if statements explicit and the conditional nature of their conclusions gets elided. This usually isn't nefarious, it's usually because they're writing for other scholars that understand what the pre-existing conditionals are, so to speak, especially if there's enough consensus about a particular assumption that there's no meaningful else statement in the debate. Well, everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is... Maybe he didn't? Anyway, the good news for us today is that Marco Polo's biography doesn't really matter all that much for our selection. Of the travel writers we'll look at this month, Marco is the least present as a character in his narrative. The excerpt we'll hear today, especially, reads a lot like descriptions from A Lonely Planet or Fodor's Guidebook. Our other writers tend to present, I came to this place and here's what I saw whereas the style of Marco Polo's travels is, if you go this way, here's what you'll see. So I'm going to set aside Marco Polo the man and talk a bit more about Marco Polo the text. That said, a little biographical context is necessary to introduce how the text came to be. The Polos were a mercantile family of Venice, and Marco's father, Niccolo, had left shortly before Marco was born in 1254, or maybe shortly after, Ramuzio says before, but there's some issue with the math. Uh, anyway, Niccolo left Venice with his brother on a trade venture that started in Constantinople and led eventually to the court of Kublai Khan in what is now Beijing. They were gone for about 15 years, and Niccolo returned to Venice to meet his now teenage son, Marco. A couple of years after that, they're off again, on the way back to Kublai Khan, this time with Marco in tow. As reported in the travels, they passed through a lot of interesting places following the Silk Road East, they reside at the court of the Khan for a while, and about 20 years later, they return to Venice in 1295. That's some serious traveling. But it's also a lot of time to work on a book and to write down all of one's experiences. Except that Marco didn't do that. He came back, according to Venetian legend, with a fortune in jewels sewn up inside the lining of his clothing, but not a book, and he didn't lose it in quicksand like Gerald almost did last episode. Instead, the Polos reacclimate to Venetian life for a few years. Then, Ramuzio describes how in 1298, Marco was an officer on a Venetian galley during a naval battle between Venetian and Genoese forces. The Venetians lost and Marco was captured and imprisoned by the Genoese. And in prison, he had a fateful meeting with a fellow prisoner, 
a writer from Pisa named Rusticiano. Let me pause here and say that I am not very well read on Marco Polo, and my main source at present is Colonel Henry Yule, later Sir Henry, the translator of the version of the travels we're about to hear, and also of Jordanus's text featured in our audiobook, which is available for Patreon supporters. I give a biography of Yule in the audiobook, and I won't repeat it here, but we'll hear from him quite a bit in this episode, so I did want to properly introduce him. In fact, we're going to hear a bit from him right now. He's doing his work in the 1860s and 70s, so while it looks like quite knowledgeable scholarship to me, it's not exactly the freshest material uh, here in 2018. But I wanted to interrupt our biographical sketch to quote Yule here, because he, writing in 1874, directly addresses the problem of reaching uncertain and conditional conclusions that I was just talking about. Concerning Marco Polo's capture, he writes, Something further requires to be said before quitting this event in our traveler's life. For we confess that a critical reader may have some justification in asking what evidence there is that Marco Polo ever fought at Curzola and ever was carried a prisoner to Genoa from that unfortunate action. A learned Frenchman, whom we shall have to quote freely in the immediately ensuing pages, does not venture to be more precise in reference to the meeting of Polo and Rusticiano than to say of the latter, quote, In 1298, being in durance in the prison of Genoa, he there became acquainted with Marco Polo, whom the Genoese had deprived of his liberty from motives equally unknown. End quote. To those who have no relish for biographies that round the meager skeleton of authentic facts with a plump padding of what might have been, this sentence of Monsieur Pauline Perry is quite refreshing in its stern limitation to positive knowledge. And certainly no contemporary authority has yet been found for the capture of our traveler at Curzola. Still, I think that the fact is beyond reasonable doubt. Okay, returning to our biographical timeline, we find Marco in prison for whatever reason, where he meets this other prisoner named Rusticiano, or Rusticello, of Pisa. The identity, and even reality, of this person has been another matter of debate. The name is associated with a number of chivalric romances in French, elements and scenes of which end up repeated with names substituted in the travels, which also raises questions about the reliability of the book. The story goes that while they were in prison, Marco Polo told the stories of his travelers to Rusticiano, who wrote them down. This process, whether we call it taking dictation or ghostwriting, produced the travels. About a year later, Marco is released from prison and returns to being a merchant of Venice. In 1324, Polo made out a will while he was suffering from his final illness, and this will survives in the record. His precise date of death is not preserved, but it was almost certainly not long after. All the while, copies of the travels were starting to circulate. The first version of the travels was written in French, a fact that kind of had to be rediscovered. Ramuzio in the 1550s thought it had been composed in Latin, like the text he was working from but it began as a French text. Or actually, Yule says, quote, We are obliged to call it French, but the author is at war with all the practices of French grammar. Subject and object, numbers, moods, and tenses are in consummate confusion. End quote. 
Italian words are liberally sprinkled throughout, sometimes roughly turned into French. It is what you might expect to be produced from the narration of a speaker of an Italian dialect full of Eastern vocabulary being transcribed by a speaker of a different Italian dialect into a language that was native to neither of them. Though it's also possible that Polo narrated in rather garbled French, since his expat Italian may actually have been strange enough to Rustachano that French was a more efficient common language for the two of them. French having been one of the dominant languages in crusader communities, and thence for European traders and missionaries in the East, as well as being the literary and legal language of many a 13th century royal court. Last episode, we talked about the careful structures and thematic linkages lurking behind Gerald's composition of his travels. Of the Book of Marco Polo, Yule writes, But the character of the language as French is not its only peculiarity. There is in the style, apart from grammar or vocabulary, a rude angularity, a rough dramatism like that of oral narrative. There is a want of proportion in the style of different parts, now overcurt, now diffuse and wordy, with at times even a hammering reiteration, a constant recurrence of pet colloquial phrases, in which, however, other literary works of the age partake. A frequent change in the spelling of the same proper names, even when recurring within a few lines, as if caught by ear only. A literal following to and fro of the hesitations of the narrator. A more general use of the third person in speaking of the traveler, but an occasional lapse into the first. All these characteristics are strikingly indicative of the unrevised product of dictation, and many of them would necessarily disappear either in translation or in a revised copy. End quote. The number of medieval manuscripts pales in comparison to the printed versions and translations that appear in the 16th century, some of which appear to preserve items not included in any of the surviving manuscript copies. Yule's theory, and I honestly don't know right now how it holds up to current paleographical scholarship, um, his theory is that the rough French version, the so-called geographic text, is very close to the original unrevised copy put down by Rustichano. This version of the text also has a few surviving translations into Italian and Latin. But the French text is later revised, abridged, and re-translated, as it were, into better French in a second branch of manuscripts. And then you have an even further abridged and edited Latin text, which is the most popular manuscript form which survives and thus becomes the basis for many of the early printed editions. It's also, of course, the furthest from whatever took shape in that Genoese prison. One of those early print editions is Ramuzio's, which incorporates additional material, including new details that Yule, at least, finds hard to attribute to anyone other than Polo himself. This leads to the possibility that there was a manuscript copy of Polo's book in Venice that he himself had annotated in some form in his later years, and these annotations have been included in the version reproduced by Ramuzio, though Ramuzio himself does not provide information about his editorial process leaving all of this quite speculative. Yule's translation, which we'll hear, is a bit of an idiosyncratic collage of all these traditions. He generally uses the second tier, the more revised and polished French version, but fills it in with material from the oldest version that had been cut out, and he also adds in the material that only appears in Ramuzio's edition that he believes might be later editions by Polo himself. And let's get on to that text. 
We're going to hear from Book 1, Chapters 19 and 20, which cover the road through modern Iran. I'm going to use the place names pretty much as Yule gives them, but even he admits these are often his distillations into more English forms of the inconsistent spellings you find in the manuscripts. So we start with the Polos heading to the city of Hormoz, which is modern Hormuz on the Iranian coast where the Persian Gulf meets the Gulf of Oman. Then they head northeast into the desert of Kerman, or in modern Persian, the Dashtilut, as they make their way towards Cathay, a.k.a. China. And so, off we go. Chapter 19 of the Descent to the City of Hormos. The plain of which we have spoken extends in a southerly direction for five days' journey, and then you come to another descent, some twenty miles in length, where the road is very bad and full of peril, for there are many robbers and bad characters about. When you have got to the foot of this descent, you find another beautiful plain called the Plain of Formosa. This extends for two days' journey and you find in it fine streams of water with plenty of date palms and other fruit trees. There are also many beautiful birds, Franklins, Popinjays, and other kinds such as we have none of in our country. When you have ridden these two days, you come to the ocean sea, and on the shore you find a city with a harbor which is called Hormos. Merchants come thither from India, with ships loaded with spicery and precious stones, pearls, cloths of silk and gold, elephants' teeth, and many other wares, which they sell to the merchants of Hormos, and which these in turn carry all over the world to dispose of again. In fact, tis a city of immense trade. There are plenty of towns and villages under it, but it is the capital. The king is called Ruamadam Ahamet. It is a very sickly place, and the heat of the sun is tremendous. If any foreign merchant dies there, the king takes all his property. In this country, they make a wine of dates mixed with spices, which is very good. When anyone not used to it first drinks this wine, it causes repeated and violent purging. But afterwards, he is all the better for it and gets fat upon it. The people never eat meat and wheaten bread except when they are ill. And if they take such food when they are in health, it makes them ill. Their food when in health consists of dates and salt fish, tunny to wit, and onions, and this kind of diet they maintain in order to preserve their health. Their ships are wretched affairs, and many of them get lost, for they have no iron fastenings and are only stitched together with twine made from the husk of the Indian nut. They beat this husk until it becomes like horsehair, and from that they spin twine, and with this stitch the planks of the ships together. It keeps well and is not corroded by the seawater, but it will not stand well in a storm. The ships are not pitched, but are rubbed with fish oil. They have one mast, one sail, and one rudder, and have no deck, but only a cover spread over the cargo when loaded. This cover consists of hides, and on top of these hides they put the horses which they take to India for sale. They have no iron to make nails of, and for this reason they use only wooden tree nails in their shipbuilding, and then stitch the planks with twine, as I have told you. Hence, tis a perilous business to go on a voyage in one of those ships, and many of them are lost, for in that sea of India the storms are often terrible. 
the people are black and worshippers of Muhammad. The residents avoid living in the cities, for the heat in summer is so great that it would kill them. Hence, they go out to sleep at their gardens in the country, where there are streams and plenty of water. For all that, they would not escape but for one thing that I will mention. The fact is, you see, that in summer, a wind often blows across the sands which encompass the plain, so intolerably hot that it would kill everybody, were it not that when they perceive that wind coming, they plunge into water up to the neck, and so abide until the wind has ceased. And to prove the great heat of this wind, Maeser Mark related a case that befell when he was there. The Lord of Hormos, not having paid his tribute to the King of Kerman, the latter resolved to claim it at the time when the people of Hormos were residing away from the city. So he caused a force of 1,600 horse and 5,000 foot to be got ready, and sent them by the route of Rehobarls to take the others by surprise. Now it happened one day that, through the fault of their guide, they were not able to reach the place appointed for their night's halt, and were obliged to bivouac in a wilderness not far from Hormos. In the morning, as they were starting on their march, they were caught by that wind, and every man of them was suffocated, so that not one survived to carry the tidings to their lord. When the people of Hormos heard of this, they went forth to bury the bodies, lest they should breed a pestilence. But when they laid hold of them by the arms to drag them to the pits, the bodies proved to be so baked, as it were, by that tremendous heat, that the arms parted from the trunks, and in the end the people had to dig graves hard by each where it lay, and so cast them in. People sow their wheat and barley and other corn in the month of November, and reap it in the month of March. The dates are not gathered till May, but otherwise there is no grass nor any other green thing, for the excessive heat dries up everything. When anyone dies, they make a great business of the mourning, for women mourn their husbands four years. During that time they mourn at least once a day, gathering together their kinsfolk and friends and neighbors for the purpose, and making a great weeping and wailing and they have women who are mourners by trade and do it for hire. Now we will quit this country. I shall not, however, now go on to tell you about India, but when time and place shall suit, we shall come round from the north and tell you about it. For the present, let us return by another road to the aforesaid city of Kerman, for we cannot get at those countries that I wish to tell you about except through that city. I should tell you first, however, that King Ruamadan Ahamet of Hormos, which we are leaving, is a liegeman of the King of Kerman. On the road by which we return from Hormos to Kerman, you meet with some very fine plains, and you also find many natural hot baths. You find plenty of partridges on the road, and there are towns where victual is cheap and abundant, with quantities of dates and other fruits. The wheaten bread, however, is so bitter, owing to the bitterness of the water, that no one can eat it who is not used to it. The baths that I mention have excellent virtues. They cure the itch and several other diseases. Now then, I'm going to tell you about the countries towards the north, of which you shall hear in regular order. Let us begin. Chapter 20 Of the Wearisome and Desert Road That Has Now to Be Traveled on departing from the city of Kerman, you find the road for seven days most wearisome, and I will tell you how this is. The first three days you meet with no water, or next to none. 
and what little you do meet with is bitter green stuff, so salt that no one can drink it. And in fact, if you drink a drop of it, it will set you purging ten times at least by the way. It is the same with the salt which is made from those streams. No one dares to make use of it because of the excessive purging which it occasions. Hence, it is necessary to carry water for the people to last these three days. As for the cattle, they must needs drink of the bad water I have mentioned, as there is no help for it, and their great thirst makes them do so. But it scours them to such a degree that sometimes they die of it. In all those three days you meet with no human habitation, it is all desert, and the extremity of drought. Even of wild beasts there are none, for there is nothing for them to eat. After those three days of desert, you arrive at a stream of fresh water running underground, but along which there are holes broken in here and there, perhaps undermined by the stream, at which you can get sight of it. It has an abundant supply, and travelers, worn with the hardships of the desert, here rest and refresh themselves and their beasts. You then enter another desert, which extends for four days. It is very much like the former, except that you do see some wild asses. And at the termination of these four days of desert, the kingdom of Kerman comes to an end, and you find another city, which is called Kobanon. So there's your TripAdvisor review of the accommodations along the Kerman Road, as posted by M. Polo of Venezia. As for exploring the content of this bit of the travels further, I'm going to let Henry Yule do the heavy lifting for me. Here are some selected extracts from his footnotes on these two chapters, which are characteristic of his scholarship, drawing on a range of ancient authorities as well as personal contacts from his own days as a British officer in India. on Polo's route. Having now arrived at Hormuz, it's time to see what can be made of the geography of the route from Kerman to that port. The port of Hormuz at this time stood upon the mainland. A few years later, it was transferred to the island which became so famous, under circumstances which are concisely related by Abdul Feda. Quote, Hormuz is the port of Kerman, a city rich in palms and very hot. One who has visited it in our day tells me that the ancient Hormuz was devastated by the incursions of the Tartars, and that its people transferred their abode to an island in the sea called Zarun, near the continent, and lying west of the old city. At Hormuz itself, no inhabitants remain but some of the lowest order. End quote. Friar Odoric, about 1321, found Hormuz, quote, on an island some five miles distant from the main. End quote. Ibn Battuta, some eight or nine years later, discriminates between Hormuz or Mogistan on the mainland and New Hormuz on the island of Jaron, but describes only the latter, already a great and rich city. The site of the island Hormuz has often been visited and described, but I could find no published trace of any traveler having verified the site of the more ancient city, though the existence of its ruins were known to John de Barros, who says that a little fort called Kukstak stood on the site. An application to Colonel Pelly, the very able British resident at Bushir, brought me from his own personal knowledge the information that I sought, and the following particulars are compiled from the letters with which he has favored me. 
The ruins of Old Hormuz, well known as such, stand several miles up a creek and in the center of the present district of Manau. They are extensive, though in large part obliterated by long cultivation over the site, and the traces of a long pier or bandar were pointed out to Colonel Pelly. They are about six or seven miles from the fort of Manau, and the Manau River, or its stony bed, winds down towards them. The creek is quite traceable, but is silted up, and to embark goods you have to go a far sack towards the sea, where there is a custom house on that part of the creek which is still navigable. Colonel Pelly collected a few bricks from the ruins. From the mouth of the old Hormuz Creek to the new Hormuz town, or town of Turampak on the island of Hormuz, is a sale of about three farsaks. It may be a trifle more, but any native tells you at once that it is three farsaks from Hormuz Island to the creek where you land to go up to Manau. Hormuzdia was the name of the region in the days of its prosperity. Some people say that Hormuzdia was known as Jerunia, and Old Hormuz Town as Jerun. In this, I suspect tradition has gone astray. The town and fort of Manau lie to the northeast of the ancient city, and are built upon the lowest spur of the Bashkurd Mountains, commanding a gorge through which the Rudbar River debouches on the plain of Hormuzdia. In these new and interesting particulars, it is pleasing to find such precise corroboration of both Idrisi and of Ibn Battuta. The former, writing in the 12th century, says that Hormuz stood on the banks of a canal or creek from the gulf by which vessels came up to the city. The latter specifies the breadth of sea between Old and New Hormuz as three farsaks. On the date wine. A spirit is still distilled from dates in Persia, Makran, Sindh, and some places in the west of India. It is mentioned by Strabo in Dioscorides, according to Kampfer, who says it was in his time made under the name of a medicinal stomachic. The rich added radix chennai, ambergris, and aromatic spices. The poor, licorice and Persian absinthe. The date and dry fish diet of the Gulf people is noticed by most travelers, and P. Della Valley repeats the opinion about it being the only wholesome one. Ibn Battuta says the people of Hormuz had a saying, dates and fish make an emperor's dish. A fish, exactly like the tunny of the Mediterranean in general appearance and habits, is one of the great objects of fishery off the Sind and Mekron coasts. It comes in pursuit of shoals of anchovies, very much like the Mediterranean fish also. On the one ruddered boats. The stitched vessels of Kerman, Ploiaria Hrapta, are noticed in the Periplus. Similar accounts to those of our text are given of the ships of the Gulf and of Western India by Jordanus and John of Montecorvino. Stitched vessels, Sir B. Frere writes, are still used. I have seen them of 200 tons burden, but they are being driven out by iron-fastened vessels as iron gets cheaper, except where, as on the Malabar and Coromandel coasts, the pliancy of a stitched boat is useful in a surf. Till the last few years, when steamers have begun to take all the best horses, the Arab horses bound to Bombay almost all came in the way Marco Polo describes. End quote. Some of them do still, standing over a date cargo, and the result of this combination gives rise to an extraordinary traffic in the Bombay Bazaar. From what Colonel Pelly tells me, the stitched build in the Gulf is now confined to fishing boats and is disused for seagoing craft. The fish oil used to rub the ships was whale oil. The old Arab voyagers of the 9th century described the fishermen of Saraf in the Gulf as cutting up the whale blubber and drawing the oil from it, which was mixed with other stuff and used to rub the joints of ships planking. 
Both Monte Corvino and Polo in this passage specify one rudder as if it was a peculiarity of these ships worth noting. The fact is that, in the Mediterranean at least, the double rudders of the ancients kept their place to a great extent through the Middle Ages. A Marseille manuscript of the 13th century quoted in Ducange says, A ship requires three rudders, two in place and one to spare. On the heat of Hormuz. So also at Bandar Abbas, Tavernier says it was so unhealthy that foreigners could not stop there beyond March. Everybody left it in April. Not a hundredth part of the population, says Kampfer, remained in the city. Not a beggar would stop for any reward. The rich went to the towns of the interior or to cool recesses of the mountains. The poor took refuge in the palm groves at the distance of a day or two from the city. A place called Ishin, some twelve miles north of the city, was a favorite resort of the European and Hindu merchants. Here were fine gardens, spacious baths, and a rivulet of fresh and limpid water. The custom of lying in water is mentioned also by Sir John Mandeville, and it was adopted by the Portuguese when they occupied Insular Hormuz, as P. Della Valley and Linshoten relate. The custom is still common during great heats in Sindh and Mekran. An anonymous ancient geography, Liber Junioris Philosophie, speaks of a people in India who live in the terrestrial paradise and lead the life of the Golden Age. The sun is so hot that they remain all day in the river. The heat in the Straits of Hormuz drove Abdurazak into an anticipation of a verse familiar to English schoolboys. Quote, Even the bird of rapid flight was burnt up in the heights of heaven, as well as the fish in the depths of the sea. On the killer desert wind, the Samoon. A like description of the effect of the Samoon on the human body is given by Ibn Battuta, Chardin, A. Hamilton, Tavernier, Tevenot, etc., and the first of these travelers speaks specially of its prevalence in the desert near Hormuz and of the many graves of its victims, but I have met with no reasonable account of its poisonous action. I will quote Chardin, already quoted at great length by Marsden, as the most complete parallel to the text. Quote, the most surprising effect of the wind is not the mere fact of its causing death, but its operation on the bodies of those who are killed by it. It seems as if they became decomposed without losing shape, so that you would think them to be merely asleep, when they are not merely dead, but in such a state that if you take hold of any part of the body, it comes away in your hand, and the finger penetrates such a body as if it were so much dust. End quote. Burton, on his journey to Medina, says, quote, The people assured me that this wind never killed a man in their Allah-favored land. I doubt the fact. At Bir Abbas, the body of an Arnot was brought in swollen and decomposed rapidly, the true diagnosis of death by the poison wind. End quote. Konikov is very distinct as to the immediate fatality of the desert wind at Kabis, near Kerman, but does not speak of the effect on the body after death. This, Major Sinjan, does, describing a case that occurred in June 1871 when he was halting, during intense heat, at the post-house of Pasangan, a few miles south of Kham. The bodies were brought in of two poor men who had tried to start some hours before sunset and were struck down by the poisonous blast within half a mile of the post-house. Quote, It was found impossible to wash them before burial. Directly the limbs were touched, they separated from the trunk. End quote. About 1790, when Timur, Shah of Kabul, sent an army under the Sirdar-e-Sirdaran to put down a revolt in Meshed, 
This force on its return was struck by Samun in the plain of Farah, and the Sirdar perished with a great number of his men. On the Salt Springs and Bitter Bread The indications of this alternative route to Kerman are very vague, but it may probably have been that through Finn, Tarum, and the Sirhan district, passing out of the plain of Hormuz by the eastern flank of the Janao mountain. This road would pass near the hot springs at the base of the said mountain, Sarga, Kurku, and Janao, which are described by Kampfer. Being more or less sulfurous, they are likely to be useful in skin diseases. Indeed, Hamilton speaks of their efficacy in these. The salt streams are numerous on this line, and dates are abundant. The bitterness of the bread was, however, more probably due to another cause, as Major Smith has kindly pointed out to me. Quote, Throughout the mountains in the south of Persia, which are generally covered with dwarf oak, the people are in the habit of making bread of the acorns, or of the acorns mixed with wheat or barley. It is dark in color, and very hard, bitter, and unpalatable. End quote. Major St. John also noticed the bitterness of the bread in Kerman, but his servants attributed it to the presence in the wheat fields of a bitter leguminous plant with a yellowish-white flower which the Kermanis were too lazy to separate, so that much remained in the thrashing and imparted its bitter flavor to the grain, surely that tear of our Lord's parable. On the Road Through the Kerman Desert This description of the desert of Kerman, says Mr. Konikoff, quote, is very correct, as the only place in the desert of Lut where water is found is the dirty, salt, bitter, and green water of the rivulet called Shor Rud, the Salt River, we can have no doubt of the direction of Marco Polo's route from Kerman so far. End quote. Nevertheless, I do not agree with Konikov that the route lay northeast in the direction of Ambar and Cain, for a reason which will appear under the next chapter. I imagine the route to have been nearly due north from Kerman, in the direction of Tabas or of Tun. And even such a route would, according to Konikov's own map, pass the shore rude, though at a higher point. I extract a few lines from that gentleman's narrative. Quote, In proportion as we got deeper into the desert, the soil became more and more arid. At daybreak I could still discover a few withered plants of Caligonum and Salsola, but not far from the same spot I saw a lark and another bird of a whitish color the last living things that we beheld in this dismal solitude. The desert had now completely assumed the character of a land accursed, as the natives call it. Not the smallest blade of grass, no indication of animal life vivified the prospect, no sound but such as came from our own caravan broke the dreary silence of the void. End quote. On the underground water supply, the underground stream was probably a subterraneous canal, called Kanat or Karez, such as is common in Persia, often conducted from a great distance. Here it may have been a relic of abandoned cultivation. Konikov, on the road between Kerman and Yezd, not far west of that which I suppose Marco to be traveling, says, quote, At the fifteen inhabited spots marked upon the map, they have water which has been brought from a great distance and at considerable cost, by means of subterranean galleys through which you descend by large and deep wells. Although the water flows at some depth, its course is tracked upon the surface by a line of more abundant vegetation. End quote. Elphinstone says that he has heard of such subterranean conduits 36 miles in length. Polybius speaks of them, quote, there is no sign of water on the surface, but there are many underground channels, and these supply tanks in the desert that are known only to the initiated. 
At the time when the Persians got the upper hand in Asia, they used to concede to such persons as brought spring water to places previously destitute of irrigation the use of fruct for five generations. And Taurus being rife with springs, they incurred all the expense and trouble that was needed to form these underground channels to great distances, insomuch that in these days even the people who make use of the water don't know where the channels begin or whence the water comes." End quote. So we'll leave Marco Polo and Henry Yule there as we head still further east for our next episode. We will end with a riddle, though. If you'd like to see the riddles in advance, follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, where I'll be posting them and our mystery words uh, ahead of each new episode. Of course, if you want thinking time, you also have a pause button of some description on your device that might be of service. Our riddle is this. What looks back as it leaves the town. This is another of the riddles of Claret, a Benedictine monk of the 14th century, and you might be tempted to answer Lot's wife, which would be a very monkish answer. But that's not it. The answer in the manuscript to what looks back as it leaves the town is the blade of an axe, presumably resting on the shoulder of the woodsman carrying it. We'll be back again in another week or so with the next installment of our Travel Writers series. Until then, you can keep up with us on Twitter at the handle I mentioned a few moments ago. You can also email comments and questions to me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, and you can get info about this episode and all our episodes at medievaldeathtrip.com. And if you liked the pairing of medieval text with Victorian annotations that you just heard, then you might well like our audiobook of Jordanus's Mirabilia Descripta, or The Wonders of the East, also translated and annotated by Henry Yule. That audiobook is available only to our Patreon supporters. You can learn more about how to become one at www.patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, or by searching for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. And now I have to go and make the reservations for the next leg of our trip. So thanks to our patrons, and thanks for listening.